Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Santiago Tabon. Santiago is a professor of economics and director of the Center for Research in Economics and Finance at Universidad Eafit in Medellin, Colombia. Santiago, welcome to the show. Hello, Jen. Thanks a lot for inviting me here. It's, it's an honor. Well, thanks for being here. Today, we're going to talk about your research on why criminal gangs govern particular areas and what to do about it. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? So this is a, a nice story. I, I believe I became obsessed with crime and violence prevention while working for the regional government of Antioquia, which is the part of Colombia where I grew up and, and where I live now. Antioquia has a large history of violence, crime, and conflict. And I remember one visit we made to a small town called Tarasa, that's three or four hours away from Medellin, uh, that's filled with croca crops and organized crime. And I went then there with my girlfriend, who's now my wife, who also worked for the government then, to enroll conflict victims in a registry for state compensation. Uh, the state was trying to just uh, compensate for this long history of conflict. And then we interviewed a woman who had lost her husband and, and two sons because of explosive landmines nearby their home. And we were kind of shocked. We heard many other stories like that one. And I believe that once you see the damages of crime and violence closely enough, kind of nothing becomes more important than working to reduce them. And then I actually decided to quit from the government and went to do a master's and then the PhD in economics. And since day one, I think all my research has been around these topics of, of crime, violence, and drug policy. Your paper is titled Gang Rule, Understanding and Countering Criminal Governance. It's co-authored with Chris Blattman, Gustavo Duncan, and Benjamin Lessing. And while the findings of the paper surely apply in many contexts, the place you're focused on is Medellin, Colombia. So tell us a bit about Medellin. Yes, so, so Medellin has roughly two and a half million people, almost four million living in the, in the wider metropolitan area. It's Colombia's second largest city and, and an industrial and financial powerhouse with a per capita income that's roughly eleven to $12,000. So Medellin has a, like a well-organized professional bureaucracy with high fiscal capacity and like road-based uh, public services. And relative to other Latin American cities, Medellin has like very large revenues. Uh, it actually owns, the city owns a huge public utility company that produces a lot of additional revenue. So it's, it's, it's relatively wealthy uh, compared to other cities in the league. A bit of history now, in the late 80s, the city became known for the Medellin cartel and its unprecedented levels of violence, uh, with a homicide rate in 1991 that reached almost 400, 100,000 residents. That year, there were almost 20 daily homicides in the city. And since then, uh, violence decreased to like all-time lows before the pandemic that, contrary to other countries, brought an unusual large decrease in violence, as is the case of the U.S., I believe. The homicide rate was actually roughly like 24 per 100,000 residents, which is still high compared to, to cities in other countries, but low if we put it like in a historical perspective. So in the city, there are like two organizations that are responsible for order. The first one is the Secretariat of Security. That's a, a large uh, civilian organization with roughly 3,000 staff sitting directly beneath the mayor. This is the city's primary organization for setting security policy and investing in, in security infrastructure. And second, there's the Metropolitan Police that's independent from the city government. In Colombia, we have a national police. The Metropolitan Police depends on this national police, and the national police is, is by itself a branch of the Ministry of Defense. The police in Colombia is fairly professionalized, and in Medellin, we have roughly 280 officers per 100,000 people, which is 
low relative to like international standards, but similar to cities like LA. And regarding organized crime, like pretty much every low and middle income neighborhood in Medellin has a local street gang that's called a combo that we're going to talk about a lot in this, in this talk. We did a census combos in 2019 and identified roughly 350 in the urban part of the city. These combos are like the base of a pyramid of, of criminal organization. And above them, there are roughly 17 like mafia-like organizations uh, that sometimes are called razones. But for the most part, the combos, the, the small gangs, are small autonomous firms uh, with a long-term relational contract with the razón as their drug supplier. So that's more the brief summary of the city. Great. And so tell us more about the combos, the gangs that are in Medellin. What do they do there? How might they be interacting with people who live in the city on a daily basis? Yeah, so we have detailed organizational data on some of these combos. Almost all of these have a core of 15 to 40 permanent salaried members. The combo territories are usually no more than a few square blocks. They are longstanding, well-defined, and known to most locals. These combos also tend to be long-lived. Many have been present for decades in some form. As younger generations take over from older ones, there are some that date from before Escobar, for instance, from before the 80s. And combo revenues come from four main sources. The first one is that every combo has a local monopoly on retail drug sales in their neighborhood. The second one, a large number also charge a security fee to at least some residents and businesses, typically in return for some protection services. About a third uh, of these combos also engage in a local loan sharking practice known as gota gota. And finally, but not this interesting, many combos collect debts for a fee and also manage, regulate, or participate in local consumer goods markets such as cooking gas, dairy products, and eggs, as similar to what happens in El Salvador and Rio de Janeiro and other places. The members of, the, of these combos tend to be poor and educated young men usually aged between 15 to 35, and almost all were born and grew up in the neighborhood they control, with even low-ranking gang members being well-paid, which is kind of different to Levitan Bankatesh found in, in Chicago. These low-ranking combo members earn usually a, a salary that's equal to the, to the median salary in the city. These combos are, are headed by a leader that's called a coordinador and are internally organized by product or service line. They have a team that's in charge of security, a team that's in charge of drugs, and so on and so forth. And finally, but, but most importantly, especially for this paper, these gangs offer protection and governance. So they offer security, order, property rights enforcement. Most of these gangs provide these services, often like on a private fee-for-service basis. And examples cover a, a wide range of topics like dispute resolution, informal contract enforcement, recovering stolen items, private security for stores, vehicles, and, and other uh, kind of properties. So what had the traditional story been about why gangs provide all these services and govern in this way? What had research before your project told us about this? Yeah, so in some sense, none of this is new. We know that business and, and personal transactions have always needed security, enforcement, and adjudication. And throughout history, groups that specialized in coercion emerged to provide these services, collecting taxes in return. So some have been states, some warlords, and other criminal groups. And historically, the lines between these actors have been uh, sort of blurry, as, as earlier work by Charles Steele, Mancur Olson, Douglas North, and others uh, suggest. But criminal governance has survived the growth of strong states. And today, many countries that uh, we know do not have a monopoly on the use of force in, in large parts of the territory. 
but instead residents live in a, in, under a duopoly of coercion with gangs and the state offering services. Uh, this is also common uh, in many cities. It's not exclusive for Medellin, as, as you were saying. And for instance, in Rio de Janeiro, uh, where Beatriz Magaloni, Ben Lessing, or Joanna Monteiro have been working, we have uh, something similar. In San Salvador, where Mikas Viaski, Nikita Melnikov, Eduardo Monteiro, Carlos Smith Padilla, and others have also been working, we see a similar context. And, and we know that this also happens in Jamaica, in some cities in Venezuela, and some parts of South Africa and Southeast Asia. And arguably, like the most common view is that organized crime fills this vacuum of power that's left by a weak state or, or weak state presence. And this can happen either in cities or, or the prison system, for instance. And we know this because of the work of Diego Mbera, uh, Asterios Capardas, David Scarbeck, and others. But the policy implication then, if we believe that organized crime is just feeding a vacuum, is that states can crowd out gang rule by just improving like the quality and reach of their services which would eventually restore a kind of a monopoly on protection and coercion. So in this paper, your research team starts digging into this with ethnographic work to try to understand the situation in Medellin more fully. And as you note in the paper, ethnographic work is not, or at least formal ethnographic work is not common in econ papers. So it's definitely a really neat aspect of this paper. So tell us about the process you use to find and talk with people familiar with gang operations. Yeah, this is an interesting story. So, so we know that like most information on criminal markets and organization comes from secondary sources, such as judicial proceedings or police investigations. And some of the examples here are the work of Diego Gambetta on the Sicilian Mafia or Peter Leeson, for instance, on, on pirates. There are, of course, exceptions. But this like information is pretty much non-existent in Colombia. And so we conducted primary interviews to collect information on illicit markets, group organization, business operations, career paths, intergroup relations, civilian governance, and, and violent conflicts, and many other topics. So to some degree, actually, this project, I guess, officially kicked off in a visit that we made to the Pedregal prison in Medellin. We told the warden, I remember that time, we, we arrived and we told the warden that our objectives, which were our, our objectives, um, and she invited inmates for a group meeting in the prison. About 20 inmates arrived at a classroom inside the prison uh, where we had the meeting. And everyone started talking about their operations and life. And it got to a point where we actually had to split in groups to allow everyone to speak. And since then, this happened like five years ago, like we started visiting uh, prisons weekly to conduct this kind of interviews. And so in that first meeting, the warden just like made an announcement and said, We've got some academics here who'd like to talk to you. Is that Yeah, it was just like that. She actually sent word <laughs> to two wings in the prison where like the highest ranking members of organized crime in Medellin were being housed. And then like 20 people arrived. We started talking to them and we made like appointments to start returning and conducting uh, additional interviews with them. So it's pretty much like that. Eventually, we also like developed uh, criminal contacts outside of prison. We don't have like the typical RAs. Uh, we employed former outreach workers that work for this before to help us build the network uh, that's been growing since then. And over the last uh, four or five years, we actually interviewed roughly 70 criminal leaders and members across 30 groups. And we had to stop only because of the pandemic, because it started. And our highest, like the highest ranking sources that we have are, are deputies, the most powerful criminal bosses in the city, but most are lower in the hierarchy. And, and, and we just kind of got to a snowball effect. We started doing interviews and continued like that. Why do you think everyone was so eager to talk with you? I think there are like a different reasons. One, probably they were bored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Actually, sometimes you, you told someone, okay, we kind of covered everything. Um, uh, do you know someone else so that I can interview next week? And, and people usually told, told us, no, 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 please come back and interview uh, uh, myself again. I, I, want to, <laughs> I can tell you more stuff. We were, of course, this is super important. This was a long process with the IRB at the University of Chicago, Universidad Fit, IPA that also helps us run the project. So we have a like a complete protocol to start making these conversations and interviews. But yeah, I guess it's, it's, they felt bored to some degree and also maybe underrepresented in the conversation with the Colombian government that was already in negotiations with the guerrilla groups. Maybe the criminal groups, I think, found this as an opportunity to be heard and kind of talk about what they do. It's so interesting. So what did you learn through these conversations? So our interviews point to three like important motives for gang rule, which was the main driver of, of the conversation we had with them. The first one is that for some combos, protection services, providing governance and protecting people are an important business line that yields significant revenue. So I was telling you before, perhaps the second most important revenue source that gangs have is collecting fees in return for providing security. So on one hand, governing is a business line. The second is that like power, authority, and the loyalty of people can be their own reward. So some combo leaders reported talk, taking pride in, in ruling or simply enjoying the status and moral legitimacy it offers. You can think of this with kind of the godfather situation that everyone consults the leader of the neighborhood and they kind of feel good about that. And the final and potentially most important motive for governing is that for these gangs is that it helps protect the gang's physical security and illicit income from competitors and the state. Because providing order wins the loyalty of residents, and loyal residents rarely inform on, on combos or combo members to the police. And also uh, because providing order directly reduces the need for the police to be around. If, if there are no homicides, if there are no thefts in the neighborhood, then the police don't have to be present a lot, a lot of the time at least. And also that came from the interviews, but then to guide our, our analysis and, and interpretation of results, we also developed like a simple model to understand how gangs will respond to an increase in state capacity and services. And then here, what we have is that if the state and the gangs offer kind of distinct but substitutable services to residents, then we should expect that, as earlier literature suggests, that increasing state reach should crowd gangs out, right? But then once we include some complexity into these models, there are some instances where more state governance could crowd in gang rule rather than out. And for instance, which is consistent with our interviews, gangs could strategically respond to state rule because if, if gang rule protects drug revenues, then they might step up once the state extends its reach. And also an increase in state protection or like governance and reach could raise the number of and value of transactions in the local economy, thereby increasing demand for governance in general and gang governance in, in particular. You then moved on to test some of these hypotheses empirically. That is, you want to know the effect of increasing state service provision on gang rule. Does it increase it or decrease it? So as you're approaching this question, what makes this kind of analysis challenging? Is it mostly that you, you know, it's tough to find the right data or it's tough to find a good natural experiment? What are the hurdles here? Yeah, so both things. First, gang governance is generally hard to measure. So in, in 2019, we ran a survey of 7,000 residents and, and businesses on the degree of state and combo rule, the perceived legitimacy of both, and levels of taxation to both. 
we developed these instruments based on all this qualitative work and interviews that we did before. So we built indices uh, for state and gang governance based on how frequently respondents told us they used services from both. And we focused on a variety of situations, such as neighborhood problems with garbage or noise, robberies and debt collection, debt collection and so on and so forth. That's kind of the survey that we did. And then like measurement error, of course, is a source of natural concern in this case. And we address this by using different strategies. The first one is that we refined these survey questions after dozens of, of, of these interviews that we did, like fine-tuning the language, the questions, and the approach to elicit like truthful answers to the degree that we could. We also used a survey experiment to assess like underreporting and security fee payment, for instance, randomized response techniques and list experiments. And, and we found no evidence of, of measurement error uh, like correlated with gang governance. And we also studied whether non-response rates or incompleteness of surveys uh, was correlated with gang governance and, and found no correlation there. So that's on the data side. Also, then uh, the second challenge is, is to study this hypothesis is identification. So the, because the state usually targets gangs, so just looking at correlates of state presence and gang rule would be misleading. And then we had to move towards uh, identifying quasi-experiments and running experiments. So you do both of those things <laughs> to give a little bit of a spoiler here. So first you consider the effects of a 1987 change that reorganized the city into 16 large neighborhoods. So tell us about that change. Yeah, so in, in 1987, the Medellin City Council divided the urban area of the city into these 16 large neighborhoods called comunas that you were referring to. And the comuna division is important because it drives the jurisdiction of the state's security and justice apparatus. So typically, residents can access some municipal services, for instance, like education and health, irrespective of their address. But the police and several municipal justice agencies are mandated to patrol and solve problems only within the jurisdiction of the comuna. So, so long as the only thing that changes discontinuously at the new border that was introduced by this new division is the distance to security and justice agencies, then this should provide some sort of exogenous variation in exposure to the state when comparing people or street blocks on either side of these new borders that were introduced in, in 1987. Yeah, so how exactly do you use that change, those new borders, to measure the causal effect of state service provision on gang rule? So for each uh, block, street block, where we run the survey, we calculate the average of the distance to the comunas, police station, and municipal justice agencies. So we have a measure of state closeness for each block. And then we match block pairs across the border so that we focus on closed blocks whose only relevant difference is distance to state agencies. We're going to have one block on one side of the border, the other block on, on the other side of the border. They're going to be super close. And the treatment variable is going to be then the difference in distance to the comuna headquarters between these third blocks. So one block is going to be closer to their state and police local headquarters, and the other one is going to be further away. And the main outcome variable that we're going to use is the difference in state and gang governance for the pair as measured with the indices that we created and pre-specified. So we're going to be comparing levels of gang governance for match pairs that are similar in all aspects, except that one is closer to the state and the other is further away. And this has happened for roughly 30 years. So and this approach follows like Killian Tituni 2015 paper on geographic regression discontinuity. The main difference being that in our context, 
the treatment is not consistently on only one side of the border, but rather changes depending on the distance of each block to its corresponding state agencies. So once we move along one border, in some cases, the treated block is going to be on one side, in some cases in the other, depending on how close both of them are to the, to the local state headquarters. But I know that not all the audience is super technical, uh, but just one, one small note is that our results are like robust to alternative specifications, including like different running variables for the distance of each block to the border, alternative pairing methods, and, and among other decisions. You run all the checks. <laughs> and remind us what data you use for this. Yeah, so we use data from our 2019 survey. We have survey data from roughly 2,000 street blocks in Medellin. We limit our sample to pairs of blocks where both blocks are within 200 meters of a new border that was introduced with this new regulation. And we also exclude borders that have like natural boundaries, such as uh, the wide river that runs north-south through the city and, and some like impassable mountain ridges. I don't know if you've been in Medellin, but you're super invited to come. But this is a mountainous city and, and in the middle of a valley. So we have a lot of mountains around. I will take you up on that at some point. Okay. So, <laughs> so what do you find? What are the, uh, the causal effects of access to state services on gang rule? Yeah, so first we showed that how state presence changes this, the demand for state services, right? So on blocks that are a third of a kilometer closer to the state, which is kind of the median difference between these match pairs, citizens reported about a fifth more state responsiveness to disputes, disorder, and crime. So being closer to the state means you, the state responds faster and easier and you can access the state better, right? The second and most surprisingly result, most surprising result is that we find also that combo rule responds to these exogenous increases in state rule, right? So blocks that are a third of a kilometer closer to the state reported about a quarter greater combo rule and government. And moreover, uh, uh, the final result here is that our theory predicts this crowding in of gang governance services seems to be concentrated in the neighborhoods uh, with the most valuable drug markets. So in neighborhoods with lower rent extraction opportunities, we see little combo response to state presence. In neighborhoods with large drug markets, we see a lot of the response. And then next, you so you've not only done ethnographic work and analyzed a quasi-experiment, you're now running a randomized controlled trial in the last part of the paper where you actually scale up a city government outreach unit that had been operating in one neighborhood for years. So tell us about this experiment. What did you do? Yeah, so we worked with the, with the mayor's office to scale up and evaluate this intervention that was designed to increase like local non-coercive state presence and improve access to government services with the aim of crowding out gang governments. We found about this by just doing uh, these observations and qualitative work. We, we went to a place of like a semi-rural area in the city called La Loma, where the city had been like intervening and, and working with outreach workers, trying to just crowd gangs out of, of the role. So compared to the border discontinuity, the experimental treatment is, is of shorter duration, like more, more narrowly focused, and did not change police presence, but rather only like this non-coercive branch of the state, the city identified 80 sectors with a combo, like a gang, but varying levels of, of gang governance. These sectors being kind of an informal neighborhood, usually like a combo territory with about 1,000 to 3,000 residents each of them. Then the city like intensified normal municipal services in 40 of these sectors for 20 months, uh, beginning in April of 2018. And then the control sectors received a normal services. 
the intervention, the intensification of services by the city had two components. The first one is that at the city level, the mayor's office created like an interagency team to respond to local concerns, such as for trash, pickup, or broken playground equipment, stuff like that. And the second, more locally, the city assigned a full-time liaison to each treated sector. And the responsibilities of these liaisons uh, were to, uh, for instance, coordinate community state meetings, provide training to community leaders in dispute resolution, and serve as a sort of broker between residents and the city to try to address uh, uh, concerns. And what data do you use for this portion of the paper? Is it the same survey data as before? Yeah, so we also use data from our 2019 survey. We collected this data from all neighborhoods for our descriptive and quasi-experimental analysis, and also collected data from all experimental sectors. And, and we, our press-specified outcomes were the same indices for gang and state governance and legitimacy. And what do you find? How did the treated neighborhoods compare to the control neighborhoods after your intervention? So sadly, <laughs> we see no evidence that the intervention crowded out gang governance in treated sectors. And quite on the contrary, we see an imprecise but positive coefficient on gang governance and a negative and precise coefficient on state governance. So after the intervention, relative state governance decreased in, in treated sectors. And this is consistent with a few explanations. The first one is that gangs could have been strategically responding here as well. This is imprecise or finding, but the intervention did not involve uh, like policing or other threats to illicit rents. So it seems reasonable that uh, with a non-coercive intervention, gang response was not as strong as, as, as it would have been in another kind of situation. The second explanation that we have here is that just like a natural difficulty in increasing awareness of state capacity in the short run, especially with these non-coercive interventions. So maybe just leaving the intervention for longer would have had different kind of results. And finally, uh, we also have some evidence on like a difficulty in compliance. We find that the state did not deliver well in places with higher baseline levels of, of gang governance. So when you put everything together, I guess your ethnographic work, the quasi-experiment, and then your randomized experiment, what are your main takeaways? What do you think we're learning from all of this? Our main takeaway is that gang governance is hard to tackle. And here, both evaluations point in the same direction. The second one is that like, we see that more intensive and coercive interventions seem to incentivize a stronger strategic response by gangs, especially in places with valuable drug markets. And third, and perhaps most obvious, we see that increasing government outreach is hard and that if you don't do it with enough strength, then it can easily backfire. And related but slightly different question, what are the policy implications of these results? What should the policymakers and practitioners who are worried about gangs on the ground, what should they take away from this? Yes, so our work, we believe, suggests a few insights. Uh, first, this market for protection is not always the main reason uh, gangs decide to rule because this direct profit motive can be overshadowed by the externalities for other business lines, especially like retail drug sales in this case. And second, as a consequence of this, it may be very difficult for governments to crowd out gangs simply by striving to govern more and better because this might spur uh, this strategic response by gangs. The more positive view here is that gang abuses, they could be disciplined with state intervention because the gang's need for community loyalty, collaboration, and respect uh, can be kind of used and leveraged by the state and the government to try to produce, like, I guess, more humane approaches by gangs in, in their relationship with communities. And finally, I guess, like, our work suggests that besides, like, prosecuting criminal leaders, which is the 
like the typical response and, and governing better, maybe states need to tackle gang revenues more strongly. And this could involve perhaps, I don't know, working on money laundry and, and revenues directly, for instance, but also thinking about regulation. We believe that the main, the main source of income of revenue for these gangs in Medellin is, is marijuana sales, for instance. So if you think in a, in a scenario of legalization, gangs would probably have fewer incentives to govern because they have on the margin, there's going to be some gangs that would just move probably to sell legal marijuana rather than just protect their marijuana revenues by governing the, their neighborhoods. So that is all your paper. Have any other papers related to this topic come out since you all first started working on this study? Yeah, so we're splitting the current paper into two now. One part with the descriptive analysis and, and quasi-experiment, and the other with the experiment. We believe that the narrative would be easier to follow in, in, in that way. We're also working on a paper on the industrial organization of gangs, analyzing like, the personal economics and market structure of the combos. And we're starting uh, uh, like, a, like a new project to understand gang recruitment and help design, run, and evaluate these sort of interventions. But others, uh, like Mika Zviatsky and her team in El Salvador, I think they have a super interesting agenda that's advancing the research frontier. She already has some papers on, on how like gangs intervene in development, for instance, in, in El Salvador. In Rio de Janeiro, there's also the work by Beatriz Magaloni and her co-authors and others, uh, Joanna Monteiro and myself. I'm working there with uh, Joanna and, and Ben Lessing on, on trying to understand also gang governance there, where the state is much more coercive, the police is much more violent, and, and, and then we can see how this different approach shapes the way uh, gangs govern and intervene with communities. And then the work by, by Raul Sánchez de la Sierra in Western Africa and his co-authors is super interesting and important, and it's also advancing this research frontier on, on gang and rebel governance. So much interesting work going on. So what is the research frontier? <laughs> what are the next big questions in this area that I guess folks aren't already working on <laughs> that you and others will be thinking about going forward? Yeah, so I guess the problem of organized crime, I believe, is set to worsen and widen in the coming decades. And many organized, we know that many organized criminal groups in, in Latin America and elsewhere emerged during and after wars from demobilizing paramilitaries and rebels. And likewise, in Sicily, the first uh, mafias emerged from the ranks of unemployed private security forces from the former feudal states. Fighters in Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, Myanmar, and other states could follow easily like the same path in the coming decades. So I guess what we need now is to develop systematic, qualitative, and quantitative data on these organizations, on organized crime. There's some inspiring research, as the one I, I was uh, mentioning before, the, the one that Mika and her co-authors are leading, Raul and his co-authors are leader, or, or Beatriz Magaloni and others. But I guess it's the research frontier is there. I would put it this way. I guess in terms of organized crime, where now, as the, the research frontier was on industrial organization 150 years ago, where we didn't have like data and service and stuff like that, organized crime is a problem that we don't know a lot about. We don't, how, we don't have tools to measure it. Most of the problems are underreported systematically, and underreporting on gang governance and activities is correlated with gang strength. And we have the policy and our knowledge being driven by crime reports. And in, in these cases, I guess we need to develop tools to collect better, better data and understand this data in a different way. My guest today has been Santiago Tabón from Universidad Ayafit. Santiago, thanks so much for talking with me. 
Thanks a lot, Jen, for inviting me. It was a pleasure. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is now part of Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit, so all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation. You can find links on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Haley Greasaber. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.